We're in a series where we have been going through the top 12 psalms this summer. And if you've shared your email address with us, then you receive a daily uh, psalm that as a congregation you can join us in the reading of the psalms together as a congregation. And the psalms are the songs and the prayers of God's people. Authored by David and Asa and others, the psalms were not simply for everyday worship, private worship, as I hope that you employ them, but they were also for congregational worship. They were for worship in the community, such that you could easily assume because they did just because they didn't have a scroll of the psalms that the family next to you they would know psalm 51 and they would sing it alongside of you and they wouldn't sing it simply to confess david's sin but they would sing it to recite their own brokenness by sin and yet they would also sing and rejoice and proclaim that their god heals forgives, and restores. There is none like Psalm 51. All the Psalms are great, but indeed this morning many of us would agree and see that Psalm 51 certainly deserves a place in the top 12 of the 150 Psalms. Today is July the 31st. It's my wedding anniversary. Wendy and I have been married 30 four years when we stood at a wedding altar and exchanged vows we had decided it was very popular at that time as young couples often did to write your own vows in additional to the traditional vows and so I pulled out my list and I proclaimed my promises to Wendy and she pulled out her list and at the end one of my sister-in-laws made a remark to Wendy she said I think you promised him a whole lot more than he promised you. Well, for 34 years now, she's kept those promises, and I'm indeed grateful. But it's also another anniversary. It's the anniversary of David Berkowitz being keyed and called out by an eyewitness as a serial killer. On the evening of July the 31st, 1977, David Berkowitz fired into a car with a couple parked, killing one and severely maiming and injuring the other. But as he ran away for the first time, and he had done this before, he had done this six times before, marking him as a serial killer, David Berkowitz was identified in the community and he was called out. And the next day they began to circle in on him to catch him. And when they finally caught him, one officer was on one side of the car with a drawn weapon, another officer was on the other side of the car with a drawn weapon, and they say, we, they said, we've caught you. And he said, yes, it's me. And they said, who are you? And he said, my name is David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. 
later he would he would share that there was a dog possessed by a demon and that as a member of a cult of Satan worshipers he had followed the advice of that dog and was strangely compelled under the influence of a demon to commit these murders and maimings. Fast forward. Ten years later, in 1987, in prison, he was attending a Bible study. And that Bible study was going through the Psalms. And when he came to Psalm 34, which we looked at last week, verse 6, he claimed that verse for himself and became a Christian. Psalm 34, 6 says, This poor man called out to God, and the Lord delivered him. And from that point on, and he's still in prison, he asked that his name no longer be Son of Sam, but that his name be Son of Hope. Of hope in the mercy of God. For that's all I've got, he would say. And from that point on, there's been fruit in his life. And one sign of fruit, and I, am, I would tell you not to be morbid or macabre, I do follow serial killers in prison to see if they ever do convert to Christ. And secondly, if there's evidence of fruit that I can have some sense of assurance that it wasn't just jail cell repentance. But one of the evidences to me is that almost, he's been in prison over 40 years now, and he comes every two years up for parole. And he's asked for the last many years, even at one point, the governor was going to grant him a pardon because he had served longer than any other person. But he's requested now to not have to appear before the parole board. Because he says, I'm in the right place. And I'm also in a place that I can serve. And he said it wouldn't be right for the families because I did commit those crimes. But he says, I don't have to have freedom outside of the penitentiary. I don't have to have freedom there to be a man and to walk with Christ. In other words... If his conversion and good behavior would simply earn him the right to freedom, then perhaps it is just a scam. But he was saying, I'm still a Christian even though I'm paying the consequences of my crime. What's the point? If you look, and I don't have the time this morning to rehearse the whole story but you'll find in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12 the story behind this psalm, this song of confession. 
And if you were a little wiggly, as I talked about Son of Sam and his conversion, if you said, I, I don't think, you know, a serial killer, come on, can he really be forgiven? Can he really be converted? Am I to call him a brother in Christ? Am I going to be in heaven with this one? Then let me remind you of David. David lusted after a woman that was not his own wife. Used his power to sleep with her. And following his adultery, she became pregnant. And in order to cover up his sin and his transgression, he had her husband who was one of his mighty men. He would have been no stranger to David. He had him murdered. And he used another man to do it. So there was a plot. It was a contract hit. And then he sat on it until chapter 12, 2 Samuel. His pastor, Nathan, came to him and gave him a gift. And it was a gift. He said, I want to tell you a story, O king, about a shepherd who had a little sheep and he loved him dearly and another man who had many sheep and he took that shepherd's one sheep and he killed him and he ate him. And David said, bring that man to me and I'm going to kill him. He gave a death sentence and Nathan, his pastor, said, but David, you're that man. Out of your ingratitude for all that God has provided you, all the sheep that you have, you became God. You took charge. You did things your way. You took another man's sheep and then you murdered the man. While maybe not a serial killer, David was an adulterer and a murderer. And he would also, in trying to hide it, he would elsewhere say that my bones actually began to become brittle and, and, and because I, I kept this inside of me. And now, like David Berkowitz's eyewitness, somebody identifies him. Nathan says, you are that man. At this point, we are asked, we know what David is going to do. But at this point, Nathan the prophet would leave. Nathan the pastor would leave. Like, much like a, a friend or a loved one or a pastor or an elder calling someone else out and saying, This is your sin. You are guilty. The determination of a person is not whether they're a sinner or not a sinner. It's whether they're a repenter or not a repenter. In other words, every one of us sins. Agreed? But how do we react when we're confronted? How do we react when that sin that we have repressed, we call it shame, we call it guilt. When we've tamped it down and buttoned it down and Put it away when it's finally exposed. How do we react? And I want to show you David's reaction 
uh, off your outline in the time that remains, I want to show you three things. I want to show you that he saw the source of mercy, he saw and identified the source of his sin, and then he sought the source of forgiveness. Dan Allender says this, Dan Allender, Christian counselor, says this about shame. Shame is running away from intimacy. Intimacy is being known. You know, the, the, the Bible uses the term, he knew me or he, Adam knew Eve. That means that they were intimate with one another. And so to be known, completely known through and through, is intimacy. Shame is a flight from that. And it is one of our deepest fears to be isolated and to be mocked forever. It is a taste of hell. The experience of being caught without defense or cover and condemned to unrelenting humiliation. John Paul Sartre said that it's the hemorrhaging of the soul. And there's even body language that goes along with shame. The typical posture is eyes downcast, shoulders slumped, heart that is disengaged. Shame is an escape from reality through disassociation. In other words, shame naturally hides itself. We see in verse 1, David, and this is a song that would be sung by the congregation. You know, I, one of my, my mentors uh, used to tell the story about a Scottish pastor who was called by a congregation where there was a particular power broker who had discovered a letter years ago that highlighted his sin. And this man called and told him, and he said, before you preach your first sermon in my church, I want you to know that I don't want you to come. And if you come, I'm going to circulate this letter among everybody. And so he delayed coming. Until someone went to him and they said, why are you not coming? And he shared privately with them. And he said, I don't want this. This letter contains truth. It contains my sin. It contains my shame. The details of it that I've, I've kept in the background. And these people don't know this. And this person, being a really good friend, says, but is it not true that you have gone before the Lord and been forgiven of these things? And is it not true that you're a recipient of His grace? He said, that's the truth of a forgiven sinner that this church really needs to hear. So the next Sunday, he came. And there was the man in the congregation shaking his head, ready to circulate the letter or the contents of the letter. And his pastor taking the pulpit, read the letter. And they called him as a pastor and he taught them of grace and the forgiveness of sinners. This is a psalm that David would not be reading a letter, but he would be inviting everybody in community to sing along with him. To literally own his sin with him and to see his sin and confess his sin to all, but also they could articulate in such a way they would say, 
David's sin and his shame is also mine. David, first of all, sees the source of mercy. Notice he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. That's covenant language. Steadfast love is the word for hesit. And it means that in a partnership such as marriage, if one fails to keep their promises, the other one says, I've got a hesed love. My love is not conditional. My love is not based on whether you're good or you're bad. My love loves you still. It is committed to you. My love doesn't stand or fall on the basis of your behavior following your promises. You can break your promises to me, but I'll never break my promises to you. That's the kind of binding love that God has for David. And he says, that's a love worth singing about. There's two ways for you to deal with shame and your sin. The shame and the guilt that you feel from your sin, you can either fight it by by hiding it and flying from it, as it were. You can deny it. You can justify it. You can defend it. Oh, I was just... Anger is a, a, a typical one that we defend. Oh, you know, I was, I'm so sorry for being short with you, but I was just so tired. I had some things happen at work. And indeed, those are mitigating circumstances. But what we find behind that person is not that he or she just got angry, but that they are actually an angry person. The heart of lust is not simply that we lust, but that we are lustful. I may not have committed the act of adultery, but in my heart I'm an adulterer as I began to walk in that way of lust, fantasy, and continue to walk in that direction. So what David looks and he makes his first appeal to here is this language of steadfast love and mercy first. And he's looking at the mercy and the love of God. He then finds a safe place that he can confess. In other words, he doesn't see God like many people outside of the church, outside of the Christian community, see God. Have you ever asked people, what they, your, your non-Christian friends, what do they think about Christians? It will lay your ears back. We are judgmental. We are critical. We are condemning. We see other people's sin. We don't see our own sin. And they say, but that's only normal because we think God is that way. We think God is critical, judgmental, condemning. And yet, David says, he's none of that. He's hesed. He is merciful. And so, David, on the basis of God's mercy alone, on the basis of God's mercy alone, says, I can now give you my sin. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice how David, going on in verse 3, that 
his sin is ever before me, and against you only have I sinned, he now begins to, to go beneath the superficial or surface sin down to the source of sin. In other words, sin is not one isolated act, but it's a symptom. Not once in Psalm 51 does he talk about his sexual sin. And that's what's behind this. His sin of, a, of lust led to adultery, led to murder, led to father hiding it out until he was called out. And rather than defend himself, rather than deny it, rather than blame shift, that Bathsheba, oh, that slut, what was she doing with no clothes on taking a bath? You know, what was she doing in my line of sight as I walked along? My... He doesn't blame shift. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't defend it. He said, that's me. In fact, he says in verse 2, he says, that's my iniquity. And iniquity means it's through and through. If you take, my wife has a couple of rules uh, in marriage. It was not one of my promises to her but uh, that I made at the altar, but later I did promise her this. And I only break it on occasion. Um, but the one rule in our house is I'm not to do laundry. I don't do laundry. And I like doing laundry. I was one of three boys, and so that was one of my chores was to do the wash on a farm. But Wendy was like, no, no, uh, you cannot do laundry. Why? Because of a couple of episodes of where the, the white socks are pink because I mix the colors with the whites has become a real problem. It's very embarrassing to the kids to wear pink socks. That's iniquity. Iniquity is not just one little spot, but he's saying it's like I have been so washed by my sin that I'm completely colored by it. And it's not simply on the outside where I am saying not simply I'm a person who sins, but I'm a sinner, but it goes to the bone. It's deeper. It's a part of my DNA. In other words, I'm not someone who tells a lie. I'm a liar. He's seeing, he's moving from the surface sin of adultery, anger, envy, jealousy, lying, a critical tongue. Every sin has a symptom or fruit. And he's moving down to the source of that sin. What the Bible calls idolatry. An idol. Something that we love more than we love God. Something that we cherish more. For instance, David looked at Bathsheba and he wanted her beauty more than the beauty of the Lord. He saw her beauty in place of the beauty of the Lord. He could look at her and say, you know what, the Lord has denied me that woman, but I won't deny me that woman. He's worshiping and following an idol. And his sin now, being called out, is actually an incredible gift because God doesn't want him 
to self-righteously work with discipline and control on the surface. Say, okay, I'm joining the non-adulterer, non-murdering husband club. No. He's saying, I don't want you to simply control the action or the symptoms or the fruit. I want to change the heart. And that's what David wants too. He doesn't simply want forgiveness. He wants restoration. And that's how he seeks out the source of forgiveness. We see in verse 7 that he uses this rather strange language to us. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Take this iniquity garment and don't simply destroy it. The flesh is good. But wash it. And wash it as only you can and make it white. And purge me with hyssop. The hyssop was a was a stalky, flowery-headed plant that was used first during the Passover of Exodus. It was dipped into lamb's blood and it was put over the doorway so that at the night of the death angel, every house that had that blood, it passed over. When we do, and I... I'm privileged to do them, but whenever we do a house blessing, we try to find some stalky plant and we try to go over the entryway and the doorway to just say, bless this house, Lord. Set it apart in this neighborhood. Set it apart in this community as a witness of a people, not that are good saints, but a people that you have saved, you have preserved, that are your people. It's cleaning house, not you, but asking Him. And it later was used to cleanse lepers. Lepers who were, had blood sprinkled, the lamb's blood again. When the blood from a hyssop was sprinkled over a leper with prayer, then God would intervene. And when healing took place, the leper who felt no pain before now comes alive. And the skin that was sloughing and rotting away is now made baby clean and new. And that's what David wants. See, David is not simply seeking out a source of partial forgiveness without restoration. Forgiveness is twofold. It means that, number one, I am declared forgiven judiciously, before the court of God. And then secondly, I'm not left to walk out of the courtroom and to live my life alone. I am restored. It's as if the judge who has now declared me forgiven turns to my defending attorney, Jesus Christ, who has paid the price for me. He's the hyssop. He's the blood. He's the wash that makes me whiter than snow. And the judge turns and he says, You know, this man, this woman, this child, they now have the newness of life. It says in verse 
11, as he prays, Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. But he says, Jesus, walk with this forgiven one, constantly, constantly renewing them, constantly at work, making them into a new creation. This morning, as uh, I think that shepherd Mike picks me up, this morning I would tell you that there is um, another anniversary, and it was about this time a number of years ago, 1980, that I had become a Christian just a year and a half before, and had communicated at the end of my junior year and been accepted to Covenant Seminary to go to study for what would become a lifetime of ministry. Me and a couple of my buddies took a road trip from South Carolina out west. And along the way, on the return, my buddies had divided and me and a brother wound up in a small town in Missouri. And I was unfaithful to a girl that I was dating at that time, not Wendy, by not calling her when I was in town. She lived in that Missouri town. By going to a bar, getting incredibly drunk, picking up with my brother a couple of other girls and spending supper in the evening at a party with them. Being a totally different person, really going back to the person I was before Christ. And I left, and over the next couple of days felt this incredible guilt and said to my heart, you're disqualified. That right there, that unfaithfulness, that's your shame. You coward. You who feel called to the ministry, you are disqualified. You who walk with the Lord, who are leading Bible studies on campus, you're doing all these things. This is your shame. You're disqualified. And I agreed. And so I made a plan to call the seminary and said, I can't come. I'm going to go back and finish my senior year at the Citadel, but I'm not coming to seminary. And when I get back to campus, I'm going to withdraw as the officer of Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and I'm going to start moving away from ministry. But before I did that, Sunday came up. And I'm sitting, not in the front, but in the back, the best seats in the house. You remember? And I remember very well, the pastor came, and they didn't do Bible outlines then, or sermon outlines, they didn't print the Scripture or anything. I had no idea what he was going to preach on. And he said, please open your Bibles to Psalm 51. And I thought, boy, Lord, you don't miss a trick. So fitting. But what was my 
how that morning when I left, I no longer saw shame as my enemy. Hear me. I no longer saw shame as my enemy. Shame that morning changed to be my friend. You know why? Because my shame had no place to go except into deep, deep hiding that I carried or to a Savior. And if my shame would drive me to a Savior, then it's my friend. If my sin and seeing it and all of this ugliness, instead of letting it silently eat like a cancer, my heart, if I can take the voice of my shame to my Lord who is merciful and He will take it again, forgive me again, heal me and make me stronger, then I am not disqualified. I am the most fit to serve. And so said David. He says, verse 15, Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He says in verse 13, I will teach transgressors your ways, not a way of condemnation, but mercy. And sinners, what will they do? Run from you? No. The shame-filled will return to you. This morning, we see the paradox of shame. Our Savior, and unlike many prudent Christian artists would do as they portray the crucified Jesus, Our Savior wore no loincloth. Our Savior was naked, bruised, beaten, spat upon. It hurts our heart's eye to truly look at Him because of the spectacle of shame. But in bearing that shame, He bears all of our shame. So that our shame no longer drives us from the face of God, but it brings us before Him. That once again, we with our broken and contrite hearts can receive His mercy and His healing and His restoration. Even to turn and tell others. That's the gift. And I believe it's the only gift that we bear to the world. That we have a Savior who forgives sinners and He'll forgive others their sin and their shame and they need carry it no more. The self-righteous cannot carry that gift because they have it not. But broken and contrite do. And so our Lord says, make a spectacle of your sin. Make a spectacle of your shame. Oh, don't glory in it, but make a spectacle as a people who bring their sin and shame even publicly before God to receive His gospel of grace and renewal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that we would not any longer be afraid of our shame that haunts us and stalks us and silently abides within 
that we would only be ashamed that we distrust you and we hold on to it. We'd be ashamed of shame. But that we will bring all guilt, all offense, even as we see it in all of its heinousness, to you. For you are merciful. You are quick with your hesitant love to forgive. And not only that, but to strengthen us and heal us that we might walk forward as new creatures with new, stronger hearts, stronger minds as we see you as our great Savior whom we adore. Even this morning as we pray in Christ's name, Amen.